0: yeah so we uh we got rid of the folks on the radio got rid of folks on the radio uh no more
1: f c c sensors no
0: more f c c sensors all we gotta do is deal with the youtube sensors so howdy <laughs> that's true yeah so howdy folks thanks for staying with us we've got we do have a great overtime lined up for you you can still call in eight four four eight nine nine t v l r eight four four eight nine nine eight eight five seven and um We do have a – we've got a voicemail. You can leave us a voicemail throughout the week. Um, But we're going to take a short break really quick, and um, we're going to be right back with Luis Leon about the Amazon Union campaign. I'm excited for that one. Yeah, it's going to be great. Stay tuned. Energy Alabama supports consumers and is a leader in advocating for them. They have been able to successfully fight off utility rate increases in the state, reduce fees for electric vehicles, increase electric vehicle infrastructure spending, and they secured a $100 million refund by Alabama Power after the utility overcharged customers for fuel. To learn more about their work advocating for customers and to join the fight, go to energyalabama.org. There's a lot of talk about a shortage of workers, but that's not the case with IBW 558. We have provided our customers
1: over 3,000 workers and performed over 3 million man hours in a pandemic year. With 8,000 OJT hours, 900 classroom hours, OSHA 30, and a state license, our members receive the equivalent of a master's degree. That's what makes IBW 558 the right choice for your electrical needs. Look us up at Facebook or at IBW 558.org.
0: The attorneys of Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs are proud to represent working people in Alabama and across the southeast. They have over 100 years of experience representing injured workers in workers' compensation, personal injury, and disability claims. Let their attorneys help you when you get injured on the job. You can find them at www.mtandj.com or 855 617 9333. Let Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs help you when you get injured on the job. Again, the website is www.mtandj.com or the phone number 855-617-9333. No representation is made that the quality of legal services is greater than the quality of legal services from other law firms. North Alabama DSA is looking for folks to work for a better North Alabama. They prioritize mutual aid, municipal activism, and union solidarity. Contact them on social media or Alabama at gmail for more information. Support for this program is provided by the International Association for Machinists and Aerospace Workers, Local Lodge 44 in Decatur, Alabama. Learn more at IAMAW44.org. Hometown Action is a proud sponsor of the Valley Labor Report, and we're here to help keep you in the loop on the assault on your right to protest, picket, and peaceably assemble in Alabama. The anti-protest bill is back this year, and it's as bad as ever. There is huge interest in building worker power and increasing unionization in Alabama that has corporations scared. Don't let their influence on our state legislators become another tool to arrest striking workers and union supporters. This racist bill is especially problematic for black organizers and unnecessarily gives law enforcement broad discretion to define even small peaceful gatherings as a riot. Tell your Alabama legislators to say no to House Bill 2. We've set up an easy way for you to do that. You can go to hmtn.link slash hb2 where you'll find more information and an email template you can use right from your smartphone that link is hmtn dot link slash hb2 you'll also find more info on social media at hometown action O-R-G. Paid for by the American Federation of Government Employees, AFL-CIO. Support for this program also comes from the Mid-South Council of Retail, Wholesale, and Department Store Union. Learn more at rwdsu.info. Which side are you on? Which side are you on? Welcome back. You are still listening to the Valley Labor Report, Alabama's only union talk radio show. We are now in overtime, and we've got some good stuff for you today. We are talking to labor reporter Luis Leon about the Amazon union campaign, explaining why we don't want to give cops more power, Uh, talking about some updates in the OVEC union case and more. So let's go ahead and get started. Um... Luis Leon is a staff writer for Labor Notes, but he also writes for other outlets in whenever he finds free time. I don't know how he does that. And yesterday, he dropped an article for The Real News. We love The Real News. You should check it out, therealnews.com. Our friend Maximilian Alvarez is the editor-in-chief over there. And yesterday, Luis dropped an article for them titled, One Year After the Failed Amazon Union Drive, Workers in Bessemer Are Voting a Second Time. And it was really good. Uh, And I was wanting to talk about the election anyways. So I figured we'd bring Luis on so that's what we did, uh, Luis. Welcome back to the program. I
2: appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And we didn't plan our to coordinate our labor notes shirt colors today. So, um, <laughs> oh. this is, are you this you're is wearing the happy... same shirt as me? oh that's <laughs> this great. This a happy coincidence. This is a happy coincidence. I almost uh, wore good.
1: mine today too, so we could have been three for three. <laughs> Sorry about that. Yeah. <laughs>
2: Adams really letting us down. I
1: know. I'm I'm rocking the old NEA Peace and Justice caucus, so I at least have the red shirt on with you guys, but Yeah.
2: Yes. We love labor notes around here. Yeah, no, we love you guys as well. So thanks for holding up the red flag. So at least you're wearing oh, red. There so. you go. Absolutely. <laughs> well, well, it's, it's like an orange. I, I take that back. It's not, it's not quite no, red. No, this is
0: red. <laughs> this is, this no, is not red. yours. Adams, <laughs> Adams,
2: Adams, Adams.
0: Adams. Is, no, I think Adams is red. It
1: too. used to be red. This is uh, faded. It's It's been a few years since this convention. So. <laughs> All right. Well, fair enough.
0: <laughs> All right. So, um... Let's talk about your, your article, and, and, and the big thing that, that you're trying to do with that article is kind of talk, talking about the second round of the, of the campaign, and, and, and maybe ways that it's different from the first, um, and I think you were able to do a bit more on the ground kind of reporting for the first round, weren't you?
2: Yes, yes. I, I went down to Alabama. And um, interview workers outside of the Circle K uh, gas station at four in the morning. Uh, So, yeah, I was uh, I was on the ground. Um, Yeah, this time around, unfortunately, I wasn't able to do that. But uh, I wanted to keep up with the story. It's an important election. And, you know, the fight of workers in the South, like we got to support it.
0: Absolutely. So what what do you think? Um, what has it seemed to you watching the coverage and and talking to folks? I'm, you know, I'm sure that you've talked to people, uh, on the phone and and stuff who are connected to the, to the campaign. What has, what has stuck out to you about the differences this time than last time?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think one of the first, like, well, let me, before getting to that, what has changed? I think one of the first things that the, the first campaign did was build some infrastructure within this massive warehouse. That they could build upon, right? So some of the leaders that you know began the organizing last time around, people like Daryl Richardson, Jennifer Bates, they're still around. Um, There were some people that were still around last time that had become more active, like Asaya Thomas, who I um, interviewed uh, and you know is quoted extensively in the piece. So I think based on what they were able to build, what they've been, um, what has accelerated, what has been ramped up is the shop floor actions that workers are taking, right? So one of the first things that you want to do as a union at a company like Amazon, I'd say, is take up space within that company, right? Which is the strategy that, you know, some of the Teamsters have said that they want to employ is the strategy that Amazonians United has been employing in terms of these shop floor actions. I wrote a piece in Labor Notes about how they um, coordinated three walkouts, you know, in New York City and in Maryland, um, as, uh, at delivery stations, right. Delivery stations are much smaller though than a fulfillment center. So I think what the RWDSU and the workers in Bessemer are doing is, you know, it's, it's a, it's a tougher, even tougher fight, um, because of how big the warehouse is and the massive number of people that work there. So one of the biggest shifts is, is just how aggressive they've gotten with, um, the shop floor actions that they're taking, right? Confronting these anti-union consultants, uh, marching under managers to make demands. Like a union is only as strong as its workers. You know, the, the, at Labor Notes, we emphasize that our task as organizers is to fight for democracy. And for us, democracy is power, which means that the more people are involved, the more we can exercise that power and press demands on the, on the boss to meet our needs. So that doesn't happen once you get formal recognition that happens from the moment you start organizing on the shop floor. So I think that there's a greater recognition of that this time around and Mm -hmm. the things, things have changed. Like I don't discount that, you know, COVID definitely had an impact last time around. Uh, The timeline was much shorter and you know, the fact that they already had this other um, union election You know, help them build some, get a foothold in the warehouse. So, win or lose, you know, they'll continue to build on that.
0: Right, right. And the, the, um, why do you think it is that, that Amazon is continuing, even in this environment, continuing to, um, to flagrantly break the law and interfere with these workers' rights to... to organize rwdsu has filed uh, three ulps and one of them is is a is a ulp to challenge precedent right but but currently under current case law um the captive audience meetings are are legal um rwdsu is challenging that but there are a couple others that a couple other ulps that they fired um that are just blatant illegal conduct and they're doing this in an environment where as you point out the general the new general counsel For the NLRB, Jennifer Abruzzo... She has, uh, in your article, you say, quote, considerable power to set guidelines for the board's regional offices across the nation for dealing with cases before them. And among the new directives issued during her first months in office, Abruzzo revived a rule known as Joy Silk, which stipulates that a company deemed to have engaged in unfair labor practices for the purposes of blocking a union's organizing campaign can be ordered to recognize and bargain with that union if most workers had signed cards to affiliate and requested recognition from the company. That would be a big step and Amazon is still uh is, is still breaking the law. Like why why do you think they're not being because it's easy, there's so many things that are legal. It would be really easy to just run a above board anti-union campaign. Why aren't they doing that?
2: Yeah, no, I mean I think that's that's a great question. I mean, I think it gets at just how much like how how unleveled the playing field is, right, for workers. Like, I know sometimes folks talk about, like I'm working on another piece around what happens in union elections, right? And it's like I would describe them as like fascist dictatorships, right? Because it's not like the the boss is a, it's an equal player to like the union, right? Like the boss has, workers are required to to be at work, the employer has all that time to talk to them, to, you know, hammer them with propaganda. The union has to appeal to workers outside of the warehouse, which is why the, the importance of rank and file unionism is so key, because it's not the union reaching out to people after work. It's workers themselves organizing among their co-workers, like Asaya was doing before Amazon kind of like slapped them on the wrist with this uh, no solicitation order, because they understand they understand that they want total control over the workplace. And what Isaiah Thomas was challenging was precisely that. He was challenging the fact that Amazon wants to have total control over its warehouses. So in terms of um, elections, you know, last time Amazon violated the law, what did it do, right? It had to send a notice that telling workers that, um, like, basically it was a piece of paper, right? Like that, that, that was the that that was the consequence for what they did, right? Like they they literally you know changed the lights, the traffic lights in Bessemer. They installed the mailbox. Like they that's did still one thing. of the
1: wildest uh incidents. <laughs> like to to change the traffic lights just to minimize the amount of conversations is that's on that's
2: right. wild. Right, right. But I mean some of this stuff I mean as you folks know like in terms of some of these things are standard, like union busting right. tactics, right? So I think it's important to not, you know, also over, like, overemphasize them and make them out to be like, you know, something like a new innovation. But it's impossible Part to the, overcome, right? Well, I mean, I think the. I, like, I think it's that's important the challenge. to make it.
0: It's important to make these. It's important not to make these obstacles seem like they're impossible to overcome is what you're saying. Are brand
2: right. new. Right. right, right, right. Well, yeah, they're, it's, it's both, right? They're not brand new. They are tried over and over again because they work. You instill fear in workers. You tell them, hey, we're going to move, like what happened at Nissan, right, in North Carolina where they said, like, we're going to, if you vote for a union, we're going to offshore, you know, like you you stoke fear, you're going to defeat a, a unionizing campaign, Right. So and then the other thing is that, yeah, they can be overcome through the kind of shop floor actions um, that Isaiah, that Dave uh, Winant um, engaged in. That's the way to build power, you know, for as workers is is to talk to our coworkers and see that we are only as strong as we as we as we are when we come together and fight for the changes that we demand are, are necessary to make our workplaces dignified.
0: Right. Right. And, you know, you mentioned that shop floor action that that people like Isaiah and and, and other folks are are Mm -hmm. taking um, the and and you mentioned that in your piece, um, quote, in January, Thomas and coworkers in the shipping dock department collected signatures on a petition demanding higher pay, longer breaks, better communication about their rate targets, stuff like that and uh delivered that petition to management and they got some of the things that they were asking for uh, they got new um, they got new and more microwaves in the break room they got more chairs in the break room like these are th- not only are they taking these actions but they're taking the actions and they're winning and right. they're showing people that they can win how do you f- d- d- does? It, are, are Isaiah and these other folks that you're talking to, are they saying that that kind of stuff showing the viability of collective action that that is making a difference in their coworkers' perception of the
2: viability
0: of a union writ large?
2: Yeah, I mean that's that's another good question. I mean, I think we see it in terms of like if you remember last time around, um, in terms of the rally that I went down to, uh, to Alabama, you know, it was pouring rain and you look at how many people came out. Um, You know, there wasn't as public of a campaign of union support, right? So what these actions, these shop floor actions do is that they serve to some degree as a structure test. It tells the union, hey, these are workers that are willing to go publicly toe-to-toe with management and have an oppositional relationship to management not some business unionism bullshit that we're partners with management, but saying it's us versus them. And this is what we're going to demand from you and you're going to give it to us. So that that not only builds power, but it also sends clear information to the union that workers are ready to fight. Um, so it may seem, you know, a person that, that has not perhaps been involved in campaigns may look at an action around a microwave in chairs, right? And they might be like, that's like, okay. Like, what, what does that mean? You know, what it means is that what ultimately these workers are fighting for is control over their workplace. So if, and the, the right to have a say. So one of the things that Isaiah emphasized was this idea that, you know, Amazon stifles workers' voices. Um, and, you know, that's something that to some degree people say, and it becomes a talking point. Um, but in Amazon, there's real, there's real weight behind that just because of how much control the company wants to exert. Like the last time around time off task, right. When workers were penalized for not meeting productivity quotas, that was a big thing for workers. Right. So that means that's like talking about auto workers protesting, fighting against speed up, you know, like this is, this is what it's about. So I think um, I think we are seeing a more public Campaign of support for the union than we did last time, so I mentioned briefly, and the the picture for this article is uh, photographs of workers saying i 'm voting union, yes, so that it's also you know a structure test of how willing workers are to go up against the boss uh, when they publicly put their names out there so So, I mean, I'm not like a big fan of like the technocratic unionism of like saying you must check off these boxes because if that were the case, if there were a permit, a perfect formula and we just, you know, used it like, you know, we would have like, I don't know, 70%, uh, 70% unionization rate in this country, but that's not the case. Right. But there's some nuts and bolts things that do work. Right. It does work to talk to your coworkers. I also, one of the things that I, lightly criticized was the whole idea of like treating union elections like U S congressional races, right. Where you have a bunch of people coming in high headliner endorsements and so forth. You know, the most important thing is Isaiah talking to his coworkers and that's why Amazon, you know, like responded so, so aggressively against it, wrote him up, gave him a warning because they realized that it's not Bernie Sanders flying down to Alabama. That's going to win this. It's Isaiah and thousands of other workers at that warehouse talking with one another and building power together.
0: Right, right. And you know, you the the picture campaign on social media that you mentioned is something that is I it, it's like amazing to me. I mean, every day they've got like a dozen pictures of new people that have a RWDSU shirt on and this big sign saying, I'm voting union yes because, and it gives their reasons why, right. you know, and, yeah, and that's that's a big deal, right, to be willing to put your name out there, your face out there, and saying, I'm going to vote for the union. I'm going to vote to be a union. I am, you know, that's a big deal. That's a big deal, and showing, and, you know, the more their coworkers See people taking these actions, the more they're likely to take take these actions right the more the more comfortable they're going to feel voting yes, voting to unionize and and maybe taking these actions
2: themselves right absolutely that's that's exactly right I mean, I think when we see people come out, it gives us courage to also come out and stand with those folks right I think it's very hard to run. Like an underground campaign with a few leaders, with just you know uh, off-site meetings that people come to, like a you know an underground organizing committee that no one knows or has met. Like you know that's that's hard. I get that in different phases of a campaign, like that's necessary. And like I said, right. I think the other campaign, the other uh, vote, like had certain like real restrictions. Uh, but, I do think there was a deliberate change in strategy like we haven't seen like I just mentioned the high profile supporters you know um we haven 't seen that as take take as much of of um, of space as it did before um, and maybe that was because of covid right they couldn 't go out to knock on people 's doors, so they said you know we 're gonna rely on social media on you know, just the media to get the message out. The thing is when I spoke to people at Circle K and I asked them, you know, what are you reading? They're reading the local paper in Alabama. You know, they weren't reading the New York Times. So you gotta you gotta think about what is the information that's gonna get to these workers. Not to sympathizers outside of the warehouse. The workers that matter the most are the ones that are working side by side with Asaya. The folks that that need to be inoculated against these talking points, uh, these scare tactics by Amazon, are those folks in the, on the shop floor, not somebody else outside of it. As much as that support would help, it's not going to help, you know, in terms of winning a campaign. So, so I think right. there was some some reflection on that.
1: Yeah, because I mean, we can't vote. Yes, as much as we you know support the the effort and as much mm-hmm. as uh you know the public and community support is important, yeah, at the end of the day we're not voting those folks are mm-hmm.
0: and the uh-huh. you know you mentioned the uh the fact that you know media coverage and Bernie Sanders coming that's not going to get somebody to vote yes, and that seems really um that point seems to me to be really driven home by the fact that there was a poll released recently uh of Jefferson County residents and it was something like seventy percent of the people there supported the union campaign and uh obviously there's gonna be there was a partisan breakdown there, forty nine percent of Republicans and like eighty percent of Democrats, uh, you know, seventy, eighty percent of black folks did, and um And 60% of white folks. And then, you know, and and it was like a similar thing last time as far as the community. I think that there was a similar poll last year about the community support for the campaign. But the people actually inside the facility, the ones that voted, um, they were, you know, they even though by demographics, Their demographics are even more like the people that support the union in the broader community. Meaning, you know, Amazon workers are more likely to be women, are more likely to be minorities, are more likely to be black than Jefferson County as a whole. And those are the communities that supported, you know, that didn't work there, that supported the campaign. And yet, the folks that actually worked there ended up voting really heavily against the campaign. And and that speaks to the fact that, you know, the outside media, whatever, people talking about it outside the workplace, somebody coming down and saying you should vote for it. That's not actually what is going to convince people. It's what's happening in their lives. It's what they're seeing on the shop floor. And what they saw on the shop floor last year was management harassing them was management uh retaliating against uh the union campaign there wasn't very many rwdsu shirts in the plant there wasn't very much support coming from workers you know publicly and so that's kind of what workers saw and and so workers were you know were not unreasonably scared and and you know the the folks that i've talked to they said that it, it seems to me that the the feeling in the shop is different this time what what do you what are your thoughts about that? I know I, I kind of rambled for
2: yeah. A bit, no, that, was, that was good. That was good. I mean, there's a lot there. Uh, let me let me take one step back uh, before a- answering that question. Right. Um, so one thing that people sometimes neglect to mention, and you folks know this because you're you're local, um, and is that Alabama had like in terms of southern states, it has one of the highest unionization rates. Right, and at one point it was like above like ten percent. Like since like 2008, it's been on a steady decline. Like now, it's like 5.9 or something. I forgot what I quoted in the article, but but the point is that there's still a memory, a living memory of people being in unions, of people knowing what unions can do. Um, you know, when they when workers come together and form them, um, what kind of what kind of dignified life a union can afford a person. Right. So there's that. It, and that's important to understand, right? Like we're, we're talking about and Bessemer and the, the, the going back to the steel industry, like that's still within living memory. Um, it doesn't guarantee you that you're going to win, of course, because in another article um, I didn't quote this from Dale. But they all came from a similar like warehousing thing where he a warehouse operation not an Amazon company where he was earning I believe he said like about 12 dollars uh, $12, and then he went to Amazon right he got a pay boost to 15.80 so the idea that workers felt like okay you know industry in, union jobs have been out of parts plants have been closing the ones that are open are non-union where it's very dangerous and there's studies that show in comparison to Detroit where auto parts plants are unionized like the accident rates are like twice the national average in Alabama so folks are saying you know here are my options they they they're making they're making a judgment so while it's true that unionized warehouses have paid higher wages it is not true that you know folks and other warehouses are earning less, like they're earning less and Amazon represents a pay boost. Now, what has happened from the last campaign to now? We have seen workers more aggressively demanding a pay, like you know, increases in pay. We had the gray resignation. We had you know, the John Deere strike. So we've had all these things that indicate that workers have strong bargaining power. So while maybe a year ago, $15 an hour was like, okay, you know, like that's, that's, that's pretty good. Like now they're like, that's not enough uh, because of inflation, because of all the things that have happened. Right. So I think that might also, I can't, it's a, like, that's a hypothesis, right? Because I, I would ideally, I would like to talk to a more representative sample of the workers to say like, yeah, that's what's really on people's mind. And I just haven't done that. Right. Um, So my my conversations were off the record with other folks, you know, that are close to it and with workers. Um, So from that, what I can say is that there's definitely been um, somewhat of a shift uh, in, in terms of how, how folks are seeing this unionization campaign, And Amazon's tactics. So I I know in the article that the turnover, as high as it is at other warehouses, at this warehouse in Alabama, it wasn't 150%. It was more like 50%. So that means that you have 50% of people that went through this last time and are already prepared for what to expect. They already saw that Amazon said, if you vote against this union, we're going to do X, Y, and Z. And they saw Amazon not do that. Right. So I think that also plays a role in how. In in, in how people are willing to say, you know what? Uh, I'm seeing people fight for this and getting what they want. A union can fight and we are the union. And if we fight, we can make some changes here. Right. Um, so I think that that. I think that has registered in people's minds. Um, so I don't know, uh, Jacob, if that, that gets at your question. Sorry for the preamble to get to that point.
0: <laughs> no, no, no. I think uh, you matched my preamble word for word. So. That, and
1: that was very important. <laughs> it is important to note that Jefferson County does have a, a strong union history that's in living memory. And mm-hmm. um, I, I think that's it is important to reflect on how the conditions have changed inside the warehouse and, and just in the broader uh, economy around it, uh, in just one year's time. So I, yeah. I hope all that bodes well for the union campaign.
0: So yeah. you know, there, there's a lot, there is a lot of other organizing happening at Amazon across the country, and you referred to that, some of that in the article, and you've written some other, some some more stuff about that. The Amazon Labor Union is closer to you. You're a Yankee. You're from New York. Um, and, and We won't hold that against yeah, you. We won't Not hold at all. Against you. Uh, <laughs> and at uh, it, all. It, that's closer to you. That's in New York. And there's two elections that the Amazon Labor Union is is um, conducting now. And you mentioned Amazonians United. How do you see the state of organizing at Amazon at these other places? Like, what's go- Can Can you give us, because I haven't kept up with that as much as, you know, obviously the Bessemer's in my backyard, right? So what's, what's been going on and, and, and what are the connections you think?
2: Yeah. Um, I mean, I've been, I follow more closely Amazonians United, um, in terms of the work that they've been doing, you know, and they've been doing this since, you know, um, they've been doing this for a while. So, um, they have been building infrastructure similar to what I described, um, as, as possibly the RWDSU strategy, right? Like, even if, let's say, this boat doesn't go in their favor, um, they've already, they're continuing to take up more space and build infrastructure in the warehouse, right? They know that this is a long fight. This is not something that's going to happen, you know, from one year to one year's time. And even if they were right. to win, the path to a contract would be very difficult with just one fulfillment center. Yes. So, and
0: just re- so, really quickly before the rest of your answer, it is, it's worth noting that RWDSU is an affiliate of UFCW, which does have an institutional memory of doing this, of going three or four rounds to win a big shot. That happened in Smithfield in like North Carolina, I believe. They went three or four rounds over 15 years and finally won and finally won a contract there. So this is a union that has shown a willingness to continue investing in uh in campaigns in workers organizing uh against really
2: tall odds absolutely absolutely and i think we have to as a as a movement we have to recognize that right like there are no shortcuts (laughs) you know like this is this, this is a fight for the long haul um and what that means if you're also if the fight is for the long haul that means that it's not a staff driven, you know, operation that you're really building workers democracy in these workplaces. And it it builds up, you know, an oppositional culture of us versus them, which is what I, what I, you know, find so impressive and moving about what um, Amazon workers are doing in in Alabama. Um, To your point about uh, Amazonians United, right. I feel like they, they have also been building, you know, their, their base of power in different delivery stations, um, stretching all the way to Canada, right? So they are these delivery stations employ at most like a hundred people, right? Um, and it's just an easier place to organize and strategically, you can really, you can really hamper Amazon's whole operations and its promise that you're gonna get your same day delivery, your two day delivery on time, right? Uh, because that's the last mile from you know, when someone at a fulfillment center packs an order and then is sorted and, and sent out to be picked up and delivered to someone's uh, doorstep. Um, that's a key role. Uh, that's a key uh, n- node in the supply chain. So I think they're doing really impressive, really great work. Um, you know, they are not affiliated with, a, with, an, impressive, with, with uh, an official union, They are kind of like a throwback to the auto workers and the CIO. Um, The other union that you mentioned in Staten Island. I haven't followed as much. Um, So I, you know, I obviously support any worker that's fighting for, uh, you know, for dignity in the workplace. But I, I haven't followed it as closely. I, yeah, so... I can't say much about them um, and what they're doing. I mean, they're holding elections at two warehouses. That's what I know. But I can't speak to, like, they're organizing. I can't say, like, I can about Amazonians United and about RWDSU. Like, there's some real organizing happening. You know, there's Mm -hmm. even if, if the odds are really tall, they are doing a heck of a good job, you know, at supporting one another, the union, as well, in terms of RWDUS case, hasn't packed up and say, "On to the next hot shop," you right. know. Like they, they are making a real investment um, in time and resources to, you know, to support these workers in their fight. Um, and that's that's what the labor movement needs to do.
0: Right, right. And and the the Amazonians United. I'm, not only are they fighting, you know, it's it's important to. To commend people for fighting and and because that's that that's a big step right, but they're also winning. I, I saw on their Twitter they screen capped a uh, a pay stub or an announcement or something of a that that showed that workers at one delivery center got a two or three dollar an hour raise as the result of a walkout or, or a series of walkouts that they you know so they're they're winning and they're winning like two or three dollar an hour raise is like. Significant, And they're doing that without being officially recognized. They're doing that without, like, bargaining for a contract. Uh, they they just took an action with that as the demand, and they were met with that. Uh, I mean, that's impressive.
2: No, absolutely. I mean, I think they've been winning all along for a very, you know, they won hazard pay. You know, and they started, like, you know, I mentioned earlier that someone may be dismissive of the microwave thing, right? But, um mm-hmm you know, Amazonians United uh, during like one sweltering summer in Chicago, you know, they fought to get water. Like, you know, like they marched on the boss because they didn't have cold water. So this is, this is about showing each other that there is power when we come together as, as, as I know, it's a cliche line that we say in the labor movement. Like when we fight, we win. When we stand together, we win, but it's true. We literally do. And, you know, solidarity is not something that is believed because it's said it is something that must be experienced. So if you are on the line with a coworker and they're freaking dehydrated, and then you go to another coworker and they're dehydrated, you go and you talk together, what should we do about this? And you decide to march on the boss. That's showing, that's a demonstration of solidarity and in in, in our collective power. And that's what we need to show each other more of right like we live in a highly individualistic society where it's like you know each person for themselves but when we break through that by fighting for something fighting for each other um we put a dent in that ideological um grip or i mean put a dent i'm mixing my metaphors there but we loosen the grip on that ideological you know uh uh, hold
1: i think that is so powerful there uh you know, solidarity can't just be heard, it has to be felt. And the issues you're talking about, they are the things that affect people on a very visceral level. And it reminds me of a conversation I just had this week with a worker at Walmart, who was upset that they had pulled the water away from their station. And this is the, you know, the folks who go out and get the buggies in the in the parking lot, and they're in and out all day. And, you know, they don't have a good reason why the water was pooled, but they know that they used to have it. It's not provided anymore. It's not convenient for them anymore to have the water. They may have to purchase water from their employer. Uh, it's, you know, but that's something that, you know, this guy really felt, you know, it's his first job, a teenager. Mm-hmm. And he's already getting this this real-world education, unfortunately, about what happens when there is no uh, counterbalance to the power of management. Right. When you know arbitrary actions can be taken against you and your coworkers for no reason, or, or for bad reasons, or for any reason at all, and you don't have the ability yet to do something about that, uh, and and that's what's inspiring about these workers at Amazon, who I think are leading the way for so many folks in industries that aren't currently organized, that you can do something about it. That when right. you work together, you can change your lives.
0: And, you know, to, to speak to the, you know, the, about just just having water or having enough microwaves or having enough chairs to sit down, you know, the um, there have been like surveys of working folks that have shown that, you know. As much as, you know, wages and working conditions and things like that matter, one of the top things that is going to actually keep a worker at a place is if they feel like they are treated well and 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 if they're not treated well even if they've got good wages or good benefits or what uh, you know the, there has been research showing that they're they're going to leave if they don't feel like they're being treated as A a human being. And so this is something that managers are taught to try to keep unions out. You know, like, oh, look, you know, if you, that's, that's why, you know, the the pizza parties are a meme because they're so commonly used because, like, people like pizza, right? And, and, you know, you, to a certain extent, you can kind of pacify people with these small gestures of like, oh, look, you know, I care about you, right? And on the other hand, workers can do the same thing. Workers can take advantage of, of, you know, all it takes to, you know, to really, you know, h- helping people get a small win, a small change that makes them feel better is going to make them feel better about about the union. And, and you know, workers can take advantage of that uh, to build power for themselves instead of for the boss.
2: Yeah, I mean, as long as it's about like meaningful, you know, engagement, like I think, yeah, I agree with you that workers want to have a voice in their workplace. They also want to collaborate and work together. Right. And sometimes management comes up with these schemes where they are in the room and they're the ones that are structuring like the collaboration. And what happens is that workers are collaborating with management on their own exploitation or workers. You know, let's say I've written a couple of articles with my colleague, Dan, who um, Jacob interviewed for my when I was on on my birthday celebrating. Uh, and you know, when you think about auto plants in, in Mexico, right. And workers here in the U S sometimes management comes up when well, not sometimes management comes up with these schemes that says in order for U S based workers to be competitive with workers in Mexico, we must partner with the company. And that means that we're going to give up our, uh, our, Eight-hour workday and work mandatory overtime. <laughs> that means that we are going to give up our Sunday off, you know. <laughs> so it becomes like this, uh, this low road, like thinking of like let's let's d- drag down our standards to the level of uh, of you know of where workers are at in Mexico or any other part of the world. Instead of saying let's fight with our Mexican. colleagues our workers all over the world to lift the standards so that there's no safe haven for exploitation,
1: right? Like that's not the,
2: that's That's, not the thinking. That's
1: huge. That is so huge to work together across these lines so that there's no safe
2: haven for exploitation. I think that's, that says a lot. Right, right. So, yes, I mean, I think the same thing would be required for Amazon, right? Like I use the auto, But to stay on topic here about Amazon, you know, Amazon is a is a multinational, you know, uh, corporation and, you know, this is going to require international solidarity as well.
0: Right, right. Well, uh, Louise, I really appreciate your time. Uh, that was a really good piece. Folks got to go check it out. Uh, there's a lot more in there that, that we didn't get to, Some a lot of quotes from from workers. The title is, One Year After the Failed Amazon Union Drive, Workers in Bessemer Are Voting a Second Time. Uh, you can find that on the Real News Network, uh, therealnews.com. Really good place. Uh, great article. Louise, thanks so much for taking the time today. I appreciate it.
2: Thanks for having me. Take care. Thank you so much. All right. All right. All
0: right. Yeah, so we've been talking to Luis Leon. He uh, he wrote that article for The Real News. It's really great. Check it out. Uh, and I'm going <clears> to <throat> take
1: this opportunity to plug uh, Labor Notes, <clears throat> where Luis writes. Normally, uh, they are having a training series in April. They do this pretty regular, uh, but they have an online training series going through Secrets of a Successful Organizer, uh, I know we've talked about that on the show before. Uh, I believe for like fifteen bucks, you can get into all three sessions. Uh, but they're not going to turn anybody away, in my experience. Uh, let's see if I have those dates here. It's coming up April fourth is going to be the first one, and then the eleventh and the eighteenth. They're all at six thirty p.m. You can do it, you know, from the convenience of your phone or computer. But if you'd like to get more. And the nuts and bolts of how do you actually organize, how do you have organizing conversations with people, where do you get started? This would be a great outlet for you, so uh, just wanted to to plug that, especially seeing you and Louise both with your Troublemakers Union shirt on. If you want to learn how to be a certified troublemaker and do it effectively, this is a great training for you.
0: Yep. Definitely. Um, So... Phone line is still open. The phone number is eight four four eight nine nine TVLR eight four four eight nine nine eight eight five seven. You can give us a call about anything that we've been talking about on the show. Uh, be happy to take your call. Um, <clears throat> and here's a challenge. I was going to try to talk about this during the main show because I felt I thought that maybe I would get maybe I would get somebody call in on this, but we didn't have enough time to talk about it. Uh, but but the challenge is to call in. And tell me a source of U.S. oil or other fossil fuel that Joe Biden has closed off. 844 899 But you can't do it because it hasn't happened. <laughs> <laughs> Even though that's like, that would be the implication that you get, right? That everybody's saying that, oh, it's Joe Biden's fault, that the gas prices are high, whatever, whatever. Nobody can explain how or why. Yeah, yeah. and
1: And obviously... I know you're about to get to this, but I I just want to say it right from the get go. Neither one of us are like big Biden bros. Uh, You know, there's no no Joe Biden signs in our yards or anything like that. So, you know, before we even get deeper into that conversation, that's worth saying.
0: Yeah. So, you know. Gas prices are definite, like obviously they're rising, and it's hurting working people. It sucks, and it's it, it's hurting us, right? I mean, like yeah. you know, we're just like normal working folks. We don't get paid like crazy amounts of money for the show. Uh, we don't take any money, in fact, for the show uh, to put in our pockets, and uh, you know we've got jobs. We do this on our free time, right? This is this is kind of like a labor of love, and so gas prices rising not only hurt working people, but they disproportionately hurt working people. It's the same reason that sales and grocery taxes disproportionately hurt working people, because even though a working person and an oligarch may pay the same tax on, let's say, a loaf of bread or a gallon of gas, more of a working person's income is spent sustaining themselves than for an oligarch.
1: Right. If you've got $10 million in the bank... A few extra bucks every gas fill up really makes no difference in your life.
0: Right. And it is for that reason. uh, That's why Republicans in this state, when they needed funding for infrastructure projects, instead of looking to the rich to pay for it, instead of maybe adding a top tax, adding another tax bracket on our state's income tax over, you know, $500,000 or something, maybe getting rid of the federal income tax deduction, which disproportionately benefits wealthy folks, instead of looking to folks like that, Republicans passed a gas tax. Why did they do that? Because it's a regressive tax. It hurts working people more, and so because it hurts working people more, it hurts them less. It hurts the Republicans less. It hurts their donors less. <clears throat> and so that's why in this session, like I just mentioned, they are moving swiftly to pass a tax cut for the bosses. They are moving much more swiftly on that than they are to eliminate the grocery tax.
1: Which, by the way, that elimination of the grocery tax, that plan that we've been discussing, that Alabama Rias mm-hmm. has been sharing, there was more polling came out last week. Showing a nearly two thirds majority of the state would support that, so it's not like they would even be taking political risk at the ballot box by doing this. It's like you said, it's it's the donors and the wealthy, powerful interests right. that they
0: actually represent. Exactly, exactly, and 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 so the the sales taxes, the gas prices, the grocery taxes, these hurt working people far more. The folks that they care about. And the folks that they care about are the donor class. And gas prices hurt working folks even more when they rise so suddenly because gas is an inelastic good, right? That means that I have and you have very little wiggle room on how much gas we can buy, right? I've got to get to work. You've got to get to work. I've got to go to the store. A lot of our travel has to take place regardless of the price of gas. So, Maybe we try to consolidate grocery trips. Maybe we don't go to the movies one weekend. Maybe we even try to carpool a couple times a week, right? But a lot of the short-term changes in our behavior are going to be nibbling at the edges. It's not going to save us that much money. Over the long term, maybe we move closer to work. Maybe we get an electric car. Uh, Maybe our city could invest in reliable and free or affordable public transportation, yeah, that would be an option, uh, but that would we be nice. can't. Yeah, we can't do that in the uh, three weeks that gas prices have risen eighty cents a gallon. Right? We can't do that in 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 those three weeks. Um, so, looking, so 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 you know, rising gas prices especially so suddenly it really hurts working people. So it is concerning to us as working people, as people who have this project to advocate for the needs of working people. It's concerning to us. And if you've listened to the show, you know, obviously we're not shy to criticize Democrats, but we have to know the real cause of the problem if we want to address it. And so because we are not shy of, about criticizing Democrats, that doesn't mean that criticizing Democrats is always going to be the answer, or that doesn't mean that the reason Democrats are being criticized is correct, just because it's a criticism of Democrats, right? We have got to know the real cause of the problem before we can address it, because if we don't know the real cause, if we do not properly diagnose the problem, we're not going to have the right solutions, Right, if I think, for example, that I don't know, uh, if, if 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 I think that the reason that I break out in hives every time I drink milk is because I am wearing Nike shoes, I'm going to start wearing Adidas, and I'm still going to be breaking out in hives, right? Because I did not properly diagnose the problem. Okay. We have to properly diagnose the problem. And a lot of folks on talk radio want you to think that Joe Biden is solely responsible for this. And I think that maybe we could say that he is to a certain extent, but not for the reason that these people want you to think. Okay, So uh, what is it that has happened that people are saying has caused gas prices to increase? They're saying that he paused the Keystone XL pipeline and new drilling. But we're already getting the oil that the Keystone XL pipeline would bring us. The Keystone XL pipeline is a pipeline. It is not an oil field. The oil is coming to us either way. Either it comes to us through a pipeline or it comes to us on trucks and trains. It's coming to us already, the oil that we would be getting. Okay? So we would not be getting more oil if this pipeline was finished. And... The pipeline wouldn't even be finished for another several years. So it still would not address the problem.
1: Right. All of this, you know, they're talking about long term uh, because, you know, everyone wants to drill now. There's a lot of talk about, well, we need more drilling. When is that going to affect gas prices? Because it won't be now, you know, it won't be the next few weeks or even in the next few months. They're talking about things that will have no impact on the current spike in gas prices,
0: yeah, uh, and 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 they're also saying that he paused, he pa- that pausing new drilling is increasing the gas prices, but that's new drilling, right? He didn't stop any drilling that was already happening. Any drilling that was already happening is still happening or can still happen. And not only was the pause only on new drilling. The pause on new drilling was was struck down. So there isn't that pause anymore that they're pointing to. It doesn't exist. On top of that, they have, like, a lot of permits. Gas companies, oil companies have something like 9,000 permits on different across the country that they can utilize. And now, for the same reason that, for the same reason that, new drilling isn't going to have an effect on uh, 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 the issuing new permits wouldn't have a ga- uh, an effect on gas prices right now um, the uh, uh, these permits it takes time to actually begin the process of drilling but they are not even beginning that process because there's an incentive for them not to drill because it increases their stock prices. It increases their stock prices not to drill because you've got this potential, um, and and because the more people that the more people pay for gas, the more uh, the more money that they make. Right,
1: and that's what no one has fully explained in conversations I've heard or any of the media coverage I've heard is how is anything you're doing going to convince the fossil fuel industries that they should have less profits? Right, right. Because that is the essential question there.
0: That's what you've got to that's what you've got to do. If you want them to drill more, you have to convince them that they need that that that, that less profits is going to be good for them. And so the uh the reason that gas prices are actually high and it's it, it, it's kind of funny because all these people that are telling you that pausing the Keystone XL pipeline and pausing new drilling, all the all, all the people that are telling you this is the reason that gas prices are so high, they are also the type of folks that, when it doesn't apply, they love to trot out like, oh, Econ 101, Econ 101, supply and demand, supply and demand, you liberals don't understand, you leftists don't understand, You, you know, all you got to do is understand Econ 101. Even though, like, in most places in our economy, an Econ 101 understanding of the economy is not going to be sufficient to, like, you know, <laughs> to, yeah, to, Econ
1: to, 101 is mostly cheerleading for free market ideology. Is not necessarily yeah, yeah. Uh, attached to reality.
0: But in Econ 101, it, Econ 101 is, is, and supply and demand is really, really su- sufficient, uh, broadly speaking, to understand what's going on with the gas prices. COVID killed demand when it happened. That's why gas prices went crazy low. We were seeing like a dollar forty gallons of gas, a uh, dollar uh, 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 for a gallon of gas in Alabama. Um, because no one was driving, right? No one was driving anywhere. Uh, no one was taking vacations. No one was flying across the country. So gas prices gas prices plummeted. And so because gas prices plummeted, oil companies decreased supply OPEC the company the oil producing companies in the world decreased supply they decreased production and production has not increased to the level that it was pre-pandemic anywhere including in the US US oil companies are not producing as much oil as they did before the pandemic it's almost there i think the, the peak was 11.3 Million, ga- million barrels of oil every day in the U.S., um, and the peak was like 12.3 million gallons of oil, barrels of oil per day in the U.S., and now we're at 11.3, I think. So it's getting there, but it's not there yet.
1: And as you mentioned earlier, they, they do have some incentive to restrict the supply. Right. Because the more supply, well, you know, that waters down the prices that ultimately can be charged. Right. So – they have uh, this incentive to keep, you know, the supply fairly low or at least artificially restricted to maintain their prices. And something that's happened just in the last couple of weeks is that the oil has decreased in price, but the gas prices really haven't. And, and so that's another factor that we see, just as normal working people, is that you know we can we can tune in. To CNBC and, and marketplace on NPR and hear how oil is by the barrel is falling, but that's not being reflected in our gas prices. Certainly not yet.
0: Yes. Exactly. That's the other thing is that even even as um the prices of oil, of barrels of oil is decreasing, prices of gas have not decreased yet. And so that's another issue. That's another issue. I mean,
1: and that's that speaks to the broader issues of monopoly power in this country, because, right. like you mentioned, gas is one of those things that we're we're beholden to. We, we cannot survive without it, for better or worse, you know, mostly worse. We can't survive without it. We require mm-hmm.
0: it. And so they've got us over the barrel. Right. And so the solutions... Um, I think I think on the short term, there's not a whole lot that can be done. But I I do think that there's some merit to a short term suspension of a lot of gas taxes. I think that there's some merit to that. And I think that we could make up that revenue by um, by either increasing the debt or taking it from uh, from rich people, increasing taxes somewhere else on rich people to make up for that lost revenue. I think that there is a lot of merit to that. I think that there's a lot of merit to that idea and we've seen states across the country doing that. Yeah, I think I think when right wingers talk
1: about that they mostly would be doing no replacement of right, the revenue. Right. And so you would just see like public transportation budgets gutted and infrastructure projects yes. gutted.
0: So we have to have these infrastructure projects. We have to have these, these uh, public transportations. And so there, there would need to be a way to replace the revenue um, in the long term. But I do think as a short-term solution, there is merit to a short-term uh, limited suspension of gas taxes. I think that that is – and that's basically the only thing. That the government can do at this point that is going to have a short term effect. I think that's the only thing that they can do. And I think that there's merit to that. And I think that we should we should be looking at doing that. I think that we should do that long term solutions instead of drilling more oil. What we should be doing is one, we should be nationalizing these companies. Because all of these people are talking about how this is a national security issue that gas prices are so high that we import oil from from some countries um so we should just nationalize like we should not it, it, the oil is too important to American life to leave in the hands of oligarchs, yeah it's just too important. And so we should we shouldn't allow these people who have no accountability, these people who have the ability to keep gas prices high as the price of oil per barrel decreases. They have that power? They shouldn't ha- they just shouldn't have that power. We should take that power away from them. We should take it away from them. We should nationalize all energy companies in the United States and bring them under public control. Absolutely. That's like that that's like obvious, obvious, obvious solution right there. Uh, I think that investment in nuclear power also has a lot of merit. Um, Fred Stafford, Matt Huber, and Lee Lee something Lee something. Um, <laughs> They've written a lot about about nuclear power and how, uh, um, you know, uh, there are ways to make it safe and there are ways to do it under government control, um, under public control uh, with good union wages. I think that because of the uh, I I think that because of the unreliability of wind and solar at this point um, and the need to have batteries with them. I just don't think that they're reliable enough to have like baseload. It, it it I have been convinced basically that we need nuclear power at least at least in the medium term. And and so I think that that's something that we should be doing and we should be investing in uh uh green jobs. We should be investing in solar fields. We should be investing investing in wind farms. And we should be making sure that all of these are project labor agreements. We yeah. talked to Eddie about that earlier. We should be making sure that all of these are tied to good wages, to good, safe working conditions, that there is a neutrality agreement with the contractors saying that you cannot um, interfere with your workers' right to self-organization. Um And I think that in the long term, if you implement all of these policies, we're going to be paying less for gas, but also we're going to have more options and less need for gas. gas, Yeah, less need for gas. Right,
1: and that is important. And I think it's something that I mean, I feel the need to say, which is we are literally in an existential crisis as the human species and most other living things on this planet are on a path to destruction. That's a big fucking deal. Yeah, that that human civilization and the broader ecosystem is being destroyed primarily by the fossil fuel industry and our dependence on the fossil fuel industry. So the fact that, you know, we have this skyrocketing ga- gas price right now, yes, it's, it's, it's hurting all of us and it sucks. But I think the, the worst thing we could do is use this as an opportunity to do even more drilling And even more destruction of our planet and and take even more years off the lifespan of our civilization. Because ultimately that's what they're talking about doing. They're not going to phrase it that way, of course. And, uh, you know, I I know that climate change is often pointed to as like a job killer and that sort of thing. But
0: it doesn't have to be
1: uh, climate change. You know, it, it threatens the future that all of us have and it threatens the very foundations of an economy. Uh, And you combine that with with a American empire that's in decline and all the increased tensions geopolitically that come with that, uh, the massive amount of refugee crises that we're going to see increasing, the the number of uh, extreme weather events that are going to be even more common and the disruption and destabilization that comes with all of that. The last thing we need is more dependence on these oligarchs, whether they be American oligarchs or Saudi oligarchs or Russian oligarchs. That's the last thing we need is more dependence on them to have a functioning economy, uh, especially when it does so at at the very expense of our future, poisoning our offspring.
0: Right, right, right. Um, Oh, and also I I skipped over this in in my bullet list, but obviously the Russia thing is like – a, that's the primary driver of gas prices in the last you know in the last month or so obviously um but and I, some I, of that's real
1: that. impacts yeah. on supply and some of that is uh um,
0: imagined impacts on yeah absolutely, supply. and
1: that's something that it doesn't take long of following the stock market uh mm-hmm. to to see how how wildly prices can vary based on people's feelings right you know the fed coughs in a certain direction and and you know that impacts stock prices, yep, Yep. but that's that 's the problem when so much of our economy quote unquote is really just speculation uh, you know because these mm-hmm. oligarchs are not taxed as you've described, right. they have massive amounts of wealth that can be used just to speculate, and that 's why you know we have these bizarre things like nfts, and we have stock prices that do not reflect at all the values or even profit margins of companies. It's, it's all, it's all a a big shell game and we're the ones paying for it.
0: Yep. Uh, Thanks for staying with us, everybody that's still on the, uh, listening to us on Facebook and on YouTube. If you're still, uh, if you're still hanging out with us, make sure you like the stream. Make sure that you're subscribed, uh, to the YouTube channel. Make sure you are following us on Facebook. Um, you can visit our website, tvlr.fm, if you would like to get our new hat, uh, or become a sustaining member of the program. And, um, Uh, I think there was something else that I wanted to say there but I forgot about it. Uh so one of the stories that we've been talking that we that we've been tracking recently has been the anti-protest bill which would dramatically increase the authority that cops have to destroy the lives of working people who are protesting their boss and the government and we think that's bad. <laughs> Hot take, hot take. Uh, That's bad. That's what we think. And one of the retorts to this is that um, don't you trust the cops? Like, I I back the blue. Why don't you? Uh, The cops would never do anything bad. Like, don't hurt their feelings. And, and, um, of course... We don't trust the cops to have any more authority than the insane amount that they already have because we live in the real world. We live in the real world, and in the real world, uh, we are continuously validated in our apprehension about giving the armed enforcers of the state even more power. In just the last... and, and, And just recently, within spitting distance... There uh, were just continually, continually validated. Last week, a cop in Scottsboro shot his wife and then killed himself. She is in critical condition. Last week, a Huntsville school security officer made sexual contact with a student. And of course, this isn't as strong as some of the others. It's still an allegation and he's just a security guard without police authority, apparently. But, you know, there's a similar mentality there. Just a couple months ago, a Huntsville cop killed his wife. Three years ago, a reporter for BuzzFeed wrote about a rape case in Tuscaloosa that the cops did not pursue, and they sued her for defamation. Last week, a court found her account was true in protected speech. Last year, a Huntsville cop was convicted of murder, and to this day, the chief of police, the city's mayor, The Fraternal Order of Police, which is the country's largest police organization, defend the convicted murderer cop. To this day, all these people defend a convicted murderer. These are all, of course, anecdotes, but all of these are anecdotes within literal spitting distance of where we are broadcasting from. But maybe let's say you don't like anecdotes. We can also say, we can also point to the fact that in Huntsville, black folks are 11 times more likely to be arrested for weed than white folks. We can point to multiple studies that have found that cops self-report a domestic abuse rate of about 40%. That's self-reporting. Wow. Wow. That's self-reporting. These are cops that are saying, like, yeah, I beat up my lady. Like, holy crap. Um, the question, the better question is why the hell would I trust these people as a group with more power when they clearly cannot behave responsibly with the power that we give them? That's the better question. And I don't understand why people don't ask themselves that question instead of why don't I trust cops more. Why don't I? Because we live in the real world, because we see the things that happen around us. We can see research that shows that cops disproportionately attack and discriminate against working people, poor people, minorities, marginalized communities. We can see it is it is totally evident. We can see the studies that show that the the uh, uh, that. Black folks are pulled over for speeding more often in the daylight than white folks. But at nighttime, the disparity disappears. At nighttime, the disparity disappears. So either black folks, for some reason, just drive crazy during the day and then they calm down at night Or cops are behaving in a discriminate way. Those are the two explanations there, and I think one of them is obviously more likely than the other. I mean, there there is just yeah so much evidence that we can point to. There are so many reasons not to not only not to give cops more power, but to take away some of the power that they do have, and even for their own good, right? Even for their own good, because we just we ask police to do too much.
1: Yeah. Uh, instead of a mental health system and a drug treatment system and a housing, public housing system, uh, we're provided police officers. Right. And that doesn't do any of us any good, including the officers themselves. But, yeah, it's it's. you can look at the current statistics. You can look at current anecdotes. You can look at the broad history of this country uh, and how policing has its roots in slave patrols. You can see how policing had its roots in the militias, the white militias that were created to go and exterminate native peoples. We can see how uh, union busting – has always incorporated law enforcement.
0: I mean, right here in Alabama, right now, state troopers are escorting, giving literal emergency escorts to scabs, to out-of-state scabs, so that they can come in and steal Alabama workers' jobs and try to break the union and try to put more profits in the pockets of New York hedge fund managers. That's what Alabama cops are doing right now to Alabama coal miners, and to the community in Brookwood. Why would I give these people more power? Yeah, I I think law
1: and order is not some neutral state. Law and order is not neutral, and neither are the folks who enforce the law and order. There is a clear power dynamic here in terms of who the laws are for, who the laws are written on behalf of and written to punish and how those laws are actually enforced on the day-to-day basis. And I think that's also a, an important thing that folks could could really use is like the theoretical background here on on what is the role of the police in our society. Uh, because we're trained from a very, very young age, from Paw Patrol age, right. to think that the police are here to keep us safe, uh, to protect our rights. But that's not – the role that's not what they do uh uh, you know to the extent that that happens that's kind of a a side effect that's not their main purpose their main purpose is here to exist uh i mean to uh to maintain property as it exists and to maintain law and order which is essentially the status quo of our social economic system as it exists that's what they're here for they're not here to keep people safe in your neighborhood And I know that there are are, are individuals who join the police force because they want to do that kind of thing. They want to keep people safe. They want to be, you know, the good cop. Um, And and I I can appreciate folks who who want to work within the system to to make things better or who joined, you know, perhaps naively with this idea of bettering their community. But – it's not. It goes beyond even just those individuals to a systemic issue there, and it's a systemic setup of how the police are designed to operate. I mean, we just found out in the last few days that American police have so many extra weapons; they're sending weapons to Ukraine. Our our police force <laughs> is so militarized; they have equipment that can be sent to a hot war in Europe. Uh, that that is just wild and and i think what folks who have the back to blue mentality either don't appreciate or or don't want to know uh or perhaps because they benefit from the way things are now is that the police are used very similarly to an occupying force in so many of our neighborhoods particularly black and brown and poor neighborhoods the police are used in, in a way that would look fairly familiar to folks in Iraq and Afghanistan over the past 20 years and the ways in which they occupy the neighborhoods uh, and the ways in which they are upholding power. Yep. So anyway, I'll I'll get off that soapbox, but uh, I'm glad you brought it up. And and it's uh, the other thing I wanted to address while we're on this topic is the idea of cops as workers. It's my Opinion, And there are people who are much smarter than me and, and much better read than me uh, who would agree with me that cops are not workers, not in the sense that we understand it. Yes, they may sell their time and labor in exchange for a, a wage or a salary, but uh, they occupy a very different role in our society, and our economy, and they are not the same as even you know firefighters and teachers and other public sector workers right uh they are right. they are the guard labor, they are the guard dogs of capital and, and and I think that's how we have to look at them and so I don't consider police unions to be unions, I uh, consider them to be protection rackets for the armed enforcers of the state. Uh, I do not see them as my brothers and sisters in the labor movement. they're my human brothers and sisters, and, and I wish no harm upon them
0: mm-hmm.
1: but they do not operate in our economy and our society as working class people in the way the vast majority of us do it's just a different role and you can yep. lump in you know ice agents and and those types uh in there with them and the scary thing is they make up a huge part of the reactionary base in this country
0: right
2: the right.
1: far right is is very popular amongst law enforcement, uh, both you know cops and border patrol agents, ice agents, those types. Uh, the far right utilizes those folks. they're militarized, they're they're armed and trained. Um, they have a militaristic personality at, you know and, and cultural basis. and so i, I you know I, they're scary, yeah, in fact, on the way here to the studio this morning. I saw uh, one state trooper pull over two different people and and saw multiple HPD flying by with sirens. And Mm. I'm not going to lie, it made me scared. It it set me in a paranoid mood for the rest of the day. Um, It kind of rattled my nerves a little bit. I wasn't doing anything wrong. Uh, I wasn't even speeding or anything like that, but it it was just enough to to affect my psyche. And I can only imagine what it would be like for, you know, a, a black trans woman you know driving right. down the same road at the same time and and what kind of psychic
0: effect that would have right right um in a little bit better news the NLRB has issued a complaint against Starbucks in the case of three baristas alleging that the company is engaging in illegal anti-union activity, specifically interfering with, restraining, and coercing employees. The cases are Layla. She is a 19-year-old barista that management continues to harass with write-ups that are not consistent with prior record of enforcement. The company also illegally punished a union supporter by writing her up for a previously tolerated medical absence and ultimately suspended her. Starbucks forced out another pro-union employee by denying scheduling availability requests. And finally, Tyler is a 21-year-old barista with autism who had accommodation requests that were initially granted and then were taken away when the company found out that he supported the union. I mean, this is just disgusting. There's a thread that Jordan Zacharin has on Twitter that I would recommend y'all read. Uh, and, and and this is this is some of it. Last year, Tyler was diagnosed with autism, and part of their autism is sensory, so the headphones and the apron that Starbucks workers are required to wear trigger meltdowns. And for a year, Tyler asked for minor accommodations, maybe less time with a headset or a shirt instead of an apron, and uh, Starbucks manage- management ignored the request for much of the time... The sensory meltdowns got worse, and finally Starbucks management agreed to make some accommodations. Then it became clear that Tyler supported the new unionizing effort in the store, and suddenly Starbucks management informed Tyler that they couldn't make those simple accommodations. They would need a bunch of doctor's notes, which Tyler could not afford to get. It's insane. Uh... he's a 21 year old who lives far from his family he can't afford to get these this professional evaluation that starbucks is requiring uh to make these accommodations they offered to work behind the scenes so the apron wasn't an issue but starbucks said no in order to afford to get medical care tyler has to work but starbucks won't let them work until they get the care it's just it's a doctor's note the accommodations aren't actually an issue. Starbucks can make them, and of course, but they're not making them because Tyler supports the union campaign. If the NLRB wins the case, Starbucks will have to offer to rehire the fired workers and reimburse them for lost wages and post a notice of their misconduct with a promise not to do it again. The hearing is scheduled for June, which is welcome news, but it's not good enough, and it's not quick enough. This is, this is quick and it's looking to maybe be resolved three months from now. Three months from now. Now, uh, Starbucks Workers United has been making GoFundmes for workers that are um, that have their hours cut back and that have been fired. So I'm sure they've got something. But um, for workers that don't have that kind of support, three months without work, even if you know that you'll ultimately get your lost wages back, three months without work is going to be devastating devastating and so this is not happening quick enough quick enough and and as always workers cannot rely On the law to save us. We've got to do it ourselves in the time that it takes this complaint to run its course. We will likely see a hundred new Starbucks, a hundred new campaigns announced at a hundred different Starbucks locations. Um, And that is what is going to protect workers at Starbucks. It's not going to be this individual case. It's going to be workers coming together to organize collectively and and uh, and and protect each other. It's not going to be the boss, It's not going to be the law gonna be it's gonna be us. Um, speaking of insufficient but welcome remedies, you remember OVEC, the Ohio Valley Environmental Coalition? Uh, they won their NLRB case. So from the uh, uh, from the tweet that OVEC the OVEC union. The OVEC union sent out on Friday, March 11th, Judge Borges released his ruling on the OVEC union's several ULPs against OVEC. In his ruling, the judge found that OVEC violated members rights under the NLRA by suspending, terminating and intimidating members during the course of the union drive. OVEC is now obligated to provide back pay to Brendan and Dustin, who they fired and expunge from their records any reference to disciplinary actions taken against members so that's great love to see it yeah but uh, they were fired like almost a year ago yeah and it
1: is very tough as important as it is to have the the union protections and to have a union who can go to bat for you when you are uh illegally fired or suspended or otherwise you know mistreated on the job it is a very lengthy process it's 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 not fun and it's not uh quick it's not it's not what it should be and so i i think we're all thankful those of us who've had unions to have our back who've been in this situation but it is by no means how it should work so i'm glad to see them get this ruling Uh, But, yeah, I hate that it took so long and it should have never happened in the first place,
0: No, uh, which
1: is which is why the workers won.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, and and just for a reminder, we've got interviews with Brendan. Yeah. On you, you can go back and and watch those to to. You know learn more about the campaign and the specifics about it and how he was fired and and um, and and stuff like that There's a
1: lot of lessons to take there in terms of organizing in the nonprofit space right. which right. is an area where we need to see you know more unions and and hopefully we will. it seems like we're're we're, I don't have the data to to prove this, but it looked like at least last couple of years we've had a real growth in organizing at these nonprofit. Organizations, and so I hope that's a trend that really continues, and I hope that this win for OVEC is uh, you know kind of a win behind the sales of more organizing in the nonprofit areas.
0: Definitely, definitely, Um, and uh, you know, like like you said, there's been a lot. Um, The SPLC recently unionized. They are located here in Alabama. We want to talk to them sometime about about uh, the stuff that they've got going on there because that's that is. Pretty cool, Um, but yeah, it's every worker deserves a union, definitely, and and even if you do work that benefits people, (laughs) and you know these folks, they want to, you know, people the, the the management at OVEC, they were like, oh, you're gonna hurt our partners, you're gonna hurt our customers, you're gonna, you know, you're gonna hurt the people who need us, right? The people who need you uh need you to be safe. <laughs> they need you to be well compensated. They need you to be in the right frame of mind so that you can do your job well. Absolutely. So, you should unionize if you work at a nonprofit. Um <laughs> Uh so last week was equal pay day and um so you know the uh that's a day to remind folks that, you know, women still don't make as much as men in the workforce, and hopefully a day to kind of spur uh, spurn us to action on that issue. We know that women earn 22.1% less than men on average, and of course there are lots of factors there, and, and people will... Will be like, oh, that doesn't actually mean what you think it means. There's not actually really a wage gap, but if you account for literally everything, like number of hours worked, education, um, uh, what industry, all these, all these types of things, if you account for all of that, uh, then you're still left with a four to six percent differential in wage, uh, which is significant, um, and. And that's necessarily a result of discrimination because everything else has been accounted for. So what else is there? Um, But should we actually account for everything? One of the reasons that um, the wage gap is as large as it is is because uh, women, the industries that women dominate, are valued less. Right, like teachers and nurses. The Department of Labor found that 10% of the gender wage gap is caused by the devaluation of women-dominated jobs. And, of course, that makes sense, right? Like, we know that teachers, for some reason, people who are going to mold the minds of the next generation, for some reason, those people are not compensated as well as the person who, like, writes a program for Raytheon.
1: Yeah, that's exactly what what was in my mind. I'm thinking about all the men who work in these STEM-heavy jobs in the military-industrial complex uh, who have similar education credentials as teachers and nurses, but who are making dramatically more for work that is, uh, in my opinion, dramatically less important to the human race. Even in some cases,
0: like, actively detrimental. Like, if you are— As an American, which is not to say that you're, like, a bad person. It's just saying that the— That you get paid in blood money. I mean— Yeah, it's just just to say that your life's work makes the world worse. (laughs) You know, I mean, if you're, like, literally if your life's work is, like, making missiles or nuclear weapons and and, and things like this for the U.S. military— like, you know, there's a certain amount of defense that is legitimate and that we need as a country, but w- our defense budget is more than the next like 12 or 13 or 14 or 15 countries combined, okay? So, um almost, most of what we do now is is not is not necessary and is and is actively harmful and could be used on more socially valuable labor. So that all that is to say, I think if you ask anybody, you ask anybody are teachers and nurses more valuable to society than um, than programmers for Raytheon? I think I think most people intuitively understand that teaching is more important to a society than that. I think most people do, but the way that we compensate people are not um uh, uh, it, it, it it does not reflect that and now maybe people will say well that's because uh you know nursing and teaching that's all government stuff and whereas people who work for raytheon are in the private sector where competition and and all these things make wages go up and that's bs because all of raytheon's money all of any defense contractor's money comes from the taxpayer comes from the taxpayer there it's exactly the same as the uh remuneration mechanism of the mechanism for pay for teachers except there's a middleman except in the case of raytheon there's this millionaire billionaire person at the top who's scraping off tons of money for himself and it's almost always himself right it's (laughs) but it so that's the only difference is that in in this case you've got this middleman who's taking away all this money And in the case of teachers, you don't have that middleman, and so it's it's totally totally absurd, and and so that is so really we shouldn't be at we shouldn't be so focused on um, controlling for the different industries because women dominated industries are devalued. Because women do them, even in programming, like programming was at first a female-dominated industry. Um, if if you'll go and like read the history of programming, when it first when it first started, women were more likely to do it because women were more likely to be secretaries, and so that kind of fell under like a secretary type role. And 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 then as it became more important to certain corporations, men began to do it, and as men went into the field. Uh, compensation increased because it was valued more, because men were doing it. And so um, we should fight against this. We should be having a higher minimum wage. We should have more protections for mothers. We should have universal health care. All of these things are going to increase. Paid uh, maternity leave. Yeah, paid maternity leave. All of these things are going to decrease the wage gap, and we should also be protecting the right to organize. Because unions fight the wage gap by increasing women's wages and men's wages, but also bringing them more in line with men's wages, right? We properly assess the value of women in the workplace.
1: And unions can actually enforce the protections that are there, that are supposed to protect you from uh, sexism and gender discrimination in the workplace. It's unions who can fight that fight.
0: Exactly, exactly. And, And one of the most... Um, One of the most evident cases of that was what happened with teachers in Wisconsin after Act 10. There have been multiple studies about what happened 10 years after Act 10. There was a study that came out last year about this that we talked about on the show that showed that 10 years after Act 10, the average teacher salary, the average teacher salary, men and women, the average teacher salary decreased by $10,000 a year. $10,000 $10,000 a year. On top of that, on top of that, there was a the there was a gender pay gap that was created. There wasn't one before. Male and female teachers in Wisconsin made the same money. They they got paid the same money for the same work. 10 years after Act 10, not only was the average wage decreased by $10,000 annually, there appeared a wage gap of 11% among female teachers. That is insane. That is absolutely crazy.
1: But hey, they accomplished part of their mission in doing so. Yep, that's uh, and I, I think uh, you know as as we kind of wrap this up, I wanted to extend solidarity to all of the educators who are on strike right now in Minneapolis. So that's a gen, you know a, a, a woman dominated industry, um, and we've seen nurses and nursing home workers really as leaders in the labor movement over the past couple of years. Uh, we've seen uh, the flight flight attendants another heavily female profession that has done a great job uh, organizing and has been really instrumental, uh, especially at the early, early days of the pandemic, they were instrumental in securing some wins for their members throughout all the uh, COVID aid packages. So we've got teachers and other educators on strike in Minneapolis. They've been on strike for over a week now, definitely uh, sending our love and some solidarity to, to those women and men who are there fighting the good fight. And, of course, all of our brothers and sisters in Brookwood and all other workers who are currently on strike right now.
0: Yep. Yep. Absolutely. So that's going to be it for today's episode of the Valley Labor Report. We appreciate your time. If you would like to help us stay on the air, you can buy our new hat. You can make a one-time or recurring donation on tvlr.fm. Share and follow the pages on social media. Uh, give us a rating if you're listening to us as a podcast. Those help, apparently. I don't know. Give us five stars. Yeah. If you'd like to leave us a voicemail, share your thoughts about the contents of today's episode, share a bad boss story, share an organizing win, or ask us a question. The number is 844-899-TVLR. That is 844-899-8857. My name is Jacob Morrison. My co-host is Adam Keller, and we will see you next week.